This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, many people believe that water is actually a human right and that everyone should have access to water and that that access should be ensured by the government and the authorities having control of water and the sewage. And we know from our own experiences in 2013-2014 when there was an attempt to privatise water in this country and the Kenny was the Taoiseach at the time and Fine Gael were the governing party but there was a ferocious campaign by the public, led, one has to say, by the left in this country. And in the end, they weren't able to get their way. And Irish water is not privatized. However, a story that broke in the United Kingdom last week revealed that Thames Water, one of the privatized British companies, was in danger of collapsing with debts of 14 billion, which is incredible, sterling, 14 billion sterling, and the total debt of all the water companies in Britain as we speak, and they are all privatized, is 60.6 billion sterling. It's a, a remarkable and alarming figure, and of course, it underlines the success and the importance of the uh, water protests here, which went on for a couple of years. Uh, and we're joined now by Chris Johns, former chief economist of the Bank of Ireland, now a very respected commentator to discuss this. Uh, Chris, you will remember the water protests and how big they were and how common it was to see on the protest marches people you wouldn't normally see on protest marches, ordinary decent people you might call them. It's very important that we won that particular battle in the light of this remarkable figure of 14 billion that Thames Water is in the hole for. Absolutely, Eamon. And it's important to know that when these companies were first privatized way back in the late 80s and early 90s, they had no debt. Uh, They were sold to the private sector with zero debt. And as you say, the numbers are now approaching over 60 billion sterling. During the time since they've been privatized, they have paid out to shareholders in the form of dividends. Yes. More than that. 
um, it's over £70 billion sterling. So it, by crude arithmetic, they've taken that debt, added the profits that they've made during that period, and paid it all out to shareholders. Yes. And the criticism that I think is rightly made is that they haven't invested in the country's infrastructure in a way that they should. Their response, to be fair about it, is that they have invested. And if you look at the numbers, as I've done, you see that after privatization, there was an increase in investment. But there are a number of things that should be said about that claim by the water companies that they do, in fact, invest, is that lately it's been falling again. And secondly, they should simply have just been investing an awful lot more and not paying it out to shareholders because the population has grown. So the, the water needs of customers has grown and environmental considerations have also grown. We demand much better from our water companies than we have been getting. So their claim to have invested is, is one of those great lies wrapped around a kernel of truth that yes, they have spent money on infrastructure, but they simply haven't spent nearly enough. And we suffer the consequences of that, which is, as you know, those very awful photographs of raw sewage being pumped into rivers and occasionally directly on to beaches. Yes. The, the problem is, is one of completely botched privatization and then one of essentially crony capitalism. Because if you look at the people that run these water companies, they are often the people that sat in the regulator before they took these incredibly high paying jobs as CEOs and other senior executives in the water companies. So in many ways, the privatization of the water industry in the UK is a study in how not to do it. Yes, and, and of course, uh, the idea of Margaret Thatcher and what's called the Thatcherite revolution in England, which it was, Margaret Thatcher was the one who had tried for years to privatize water. She wasn't having great success, but she then won the 1987 general election. And in 1989, the privatization of water was resurrected from what was thought to be the dead and uh, implemented uh, rather rapidly, actually. And it put England and Wales, your home country, Chris, as the only two countries in the world to have a fully privatized water and sewage disposal scheme. That is because most of the world, um, if, incidentally, in Scotland and Northern Ireland, the water and sewage services remained in public ownership. It is regarded and is surely a human right. Well, yes. Um, and I know a lot <laughs> Sorry, of people. Sorry, Chris, I don't want to throw that phrase. That. I had a, a former chief economist of the Bank of Ireland. Yeah. Human rights, as an, as an economist, I would say human rights sometimes nevertheless have to be paid for. And the question has to be asked who is going to pay and also how much. And it raises the question about how these companies should be run. They sh clearly shouldn't be run in the way that they are. On the Welsh water thing, there is a nuance there that's worth mentioning in that it is run, Welsh water is run as a not-for-profit not company. So it's run yes. very differently to Thames water. And that's an interesting model for anybody thinking about this going forward. But privatization generally was um, done for a number of reasons in the UK. It wasn't just, it wasn't exclusively ideological about introducing capitalism into all of these previously public-owned entities. There was a very hard-headed financial need for doing it at the time because all of the privatizations of nationalized industries had been preceded by 
an awful public sector finances debate in which the the borrowings of all these companies were the tail wagging the dog of public sector taxation and spending decisions. Yes. Because when these companies borrow, it, when they're owned by the state, they were added to the state's borrowing requirement. It's a narrow technical economic point. But back then, it was incredibly important because the chancellor was very hamstrung in his borrowing and taxation spending decisions by the borrowing needs of these companies. So in the jargon, it was moved off the balance sheet of the public sector. It was known at the time that these companies were going to have to borrow an awful lot of money because the water infrastructure, Victorian, as it often is in, 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 in Ireland, needed huge investment. It had been neglected by the public sector because they, their borrowing needs were being squashed by central government. So there was a hard-headed financial reason for doing it, but also an ideological one. Yes. And, and just to, to give another bit of context, the Labour governments had been in power in the 70s in particular, and the railways, for example, um, the union's behavior on the railway system, which I used uh, a lot in those 70s years, they were rapacious, they were nasty, they would call a strike at the drop of a hat, and of course the rail railways were running at a massive loss. Hence the privatization in the end of British Rail, which has turned into be... Uh, a disaster in itself, hasn't it, Chris? But what I was just wondering, uh, what you think of the idea that this present Tory government, awful as it's been for 13 years, and the Thatcher government, they didn't come out of thin air. They came out of a bitter period when Britain was regarded, A, as the sick man of Europe, and B, there was something called the winter of discontent, when Labour governments were in power and the gravediggers went on strike and people couldn't get buried at one stage. So this kind of conversation we're having about the, the wickedness, really, and greed of people who have privatised or have availed of privatisation, it didn't come from nowhere. No, and there's all sorts of issues about theory versus practice. The theory behind privatisation uh, was actually quite a good one, which is that, first of all, if you sell it at the right price, the taxpayer will get value for money. And there are all sorts of questions about the prices of these companies that were sold at the time, that an awful lot of them were sold on the cheap. And the second question um, arises then about how do you regulate and or just run these companies post-privatization. One of the theories behind a good privatization is that you, you introduce competition to keep these companies honest and you keep and by that I mean both the workers and the the uh, managers of these companies because as you say if we'd had this conversation in the 1970s whereas today we're saying that clearly many different aspects of privatization haven't worked we would have said that many different aspects of public sector ownership yes. clearly doesn't work if you if you were living as I was in the UK in the 1970s through power cut strikes and union control of badly run companies. Fault yes. was on both sides. Over Manning, for example, having more people. I mean, for it destroyed the print industry. Uh, Over Manning in newspapers, which allowed Murdoch to gain control of the Times newspaper, Sunday Times, uh, and the Times newspaper, and ultimately uh, to build his own press empire, but there was, under 
the trade unions which ran uh, the print industry the most appalling practices, including being paid for work when you were in the pub or at home. Yep. F- uh, and- f- all that stuff was going on. So it's it, for younger people today, it, it's the greedy capitalists who are benefiting now, but the greedy leftists would hurt the public just as easily as these greedy capitalists. Yes, and you you mentioned the print industry. I would mention the car industry. Britain wants yes. Britain manufactures orders of magnitude less cars than it did in the 1970s, and it's arguable that a combination of uh, trade union militancy, because there were an awful lot of very hard left shop stewards around at the time, which be, who became household names, um, they were so, so active, and also um, hopeless management. And arguably, the hopeless management thing is the continued, the, the thing that has continued un- until the present day. But these companies, these nationalized industries were also very, very badly run. Uh, I, my own father was, was uh, a worker in a, in a steel plant in Cardiff when yes. I was growing up. And he, I remember him regularly telling me stories when we, we took me on trips to the science museum in London and he would point out machinery in the science museum that was more modern than the equipment he was having to work with in his steelworks. Wow. The, these were these were companies that were badly run, not invested in. And so, as you say, Eamon, a lot of the problems that the British economy is in at the moment have been in gestation for, for many, many years. It goes back to those 1970s times and a whole series of bad decisions, including, but not only, the 13 years that we've had. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Did you remember somebody called Nick Timothy? 
I do. He was, yeah, I think he was a close advisor to Theresa May, who yes. is beginning to look more heroic by the minute as her su- successors, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, and this fellow that's in there now, Rishi Sunak, as they behave, um, well, uh, no one can match Johnson, but Truss was a bit of a, and so she's beginning to look a- angelic. Yeah, Nick Timothy was uh, Theresa May's right-hand man, and he was the architect of the hard Brexit that we're suffering from at the moment. It's sometimes forgotten. I didn't know that. that. The Brexit that we've got, uh, it it was the hardest version available to us. He was the one that wrote all those speeches that Theresa made uh, about immigration, about ending free movement, no chance at all of Britain ever joining the single market or the customs union. All those things that were open to us at the time were closed off essentially by Nick Timothy whispering in um, Theresa May's ear. He's the hardest of hard Brexiteers. Uh, he writes a column for the Daily Telegraph, which you probably know, says all that you need to know about Nick Timothy. He is, as well as being a hard Brexiteer, he would be on the extreme right of the Tory party. If he was in Parliament, he would probably be a leading member of the ERG. But he's written something today that is totally jaw-dropping in terms of summarising just where we're at in the UK. Let me spend 10 seconds reading out his a section of his column. We know capitalism, untempered, can be rapacious, Brilliant, innovative and wealth creating, but also exploitative and careless about the externalities of doing business. Think, for example, of tech firms that profit and care little about the algorithms that send inappropriate content to our children. Our economic pain is sometimes caused by a failure to regulate. But when we do regulate, we often get it horribly wrong. From the absurd complexity of the planning system to the failure of pension regulations, we have built an economic model that rewards the wealthy, not the many, the incumbent, not the challenger, the bureaucrat, not the entrepreneur, the rentier, not the risk taker, the financier, not the maker. And we are serfs to debt trapped by low pay and bloated assets. Now, if, if that had been written by some lefty commentator <laughs> just like, you, like, like you, Eamon, yeah. um, we, 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 would, we wouldn't be surprised. But this is the guy who is one of the, if you, I, I choose my words carefully, thought leaders behind the new British right. And he is yeah. making some, you know, making, writing a column here that could have easily been written by, frankly, Jeremy Corbyn. Yes. Um, Extraordinary stuff. That's the state that we're in. But he, his, the, the key to understand this that links everything that we're talking about is the, the, the failure of privatization, the way in which uh, British companies are owned these days, the way in which British companies are managed and run. It's, it's regulation. It's, it's regulatory capture. And there is just too many examples of that. The great financial crisis of 15 years ago was caused by a failure of regulation. We've mentioned water companies. That's a failure of regulation. The key to understand what's going on is that it didn't have to be this way. If you, if you listened to some, some economists, nobody listens to economists anymore, you would know that there is a correct right way of doing regulation that does stand a chance of a very different outcome. But we made different policy choices, ones that have led to the situation that we're in today. It, and, and the regulatory story extends a, a well away from things like water into all sorts of other areas. I could talk to you about petrol stations and diesel prices, yes. for example. And that that's very topical here in the UK. Yeah, and again, there appears to be extortion 
virtually. And a lot of British supermarkets have a petrol station attached and they appear to be taking inordinate amounts of profit. Yes, and we had yesterday a report published by a body called the Competition and Markets Authority on this very subject. And one of the things that many people in both Britain and Ireland um, have noticed in in recent years, um, it's, it's the same with our electricity and gas bills, is that these companies seem to be very quick to put prices up and claim that it's the cost of doing business, it's international markets, it's in the case of petrol stations, it's the international price of oil, and then very slow to put prices down when uh, international oil prices fall. And it's it's called the rocket and feather effect. Prices go up like a rocket and fall like a feather. And the... Competition of markets authority. The, the structure of the way we do petrol pricing here in the UK is somewhat different. Uh, there are lots of overlaps, but the, the difference between Britain and Ireland is that we, we all get an awful lot of our petrol. We've, we all fill up in um, forecourts that are, that are attached to large superstores supermarket superstores. I know it does exist in, in one or two cases in Ireland, but it's uh, ubiquitous here in Ireland. And the, the whole competitive ir- environment for petrol and diesel is set by these supermarket prices. Now, because I just wanted to ask you an intriguing story in The Guardian about uh, Nigel Farage. As we're on the topic of Brexit, uh, it's hard to get away from the topic of Brexit. Nigel isn't happy these days, but... A British minister has had to warn banks against closing Mr. Farage's bank account. Why is Farage having his bank account closed? And I didn't know, well, he's claiming, uh, Tom Toucanhat, who used to be a left of centre respectable Tory, but appears to have had some sort of a road to Damascus moment himself, he said it was on political grounds and it should be completely open to banks to close bank accounts. Why would Farage be in that frame, do you think? There is some suggestion that he's connected to the Russians in some way. Yeah, we don't know why his account has been closed. And Tugendhat, as you say, has said today that if Farage is account has been closed because of his political views, that's wrong, which it is. Nobody should have their bank account closed because of their political views. But again, this is a story about regulation. A lot of this stuff that we're talking about today is is about regulation. And uh, as a result of the financial crisis, uh, financial institutions are much, much more tightly and appropriately so regulated than they were before. The financial crisis, as I said, is yet another story about the failure of regulation, a story about regulatory capture. But now um, these financial institutions are regulated, in my view, properly um, and very, very stringently because of the rules that have been introduced over the last 15 years. Ireland has gone from being one of the uh, more loosely regulated economies prior to the financial crisis, shall we say that, to, to, you have a financial regulator that now has a reputation in the financial world of being the toughest in the world. Yes. And um, that doesn't make headlines, but it is something that you guys should be congratulated for because I think it's 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 only right. And one of the, the many, many mind-numbing details about the new financial regulation 
is uh, all institutions that are, connect, are doing business with individuals and or companies have to look at their political exposure. In the, in the jargon, mm. there's an acronym called a PEP, a politically exposed person. Really? And this is not to look at their political views. It's not about their opinions at all. It's whether no. they have actual financial and or right. other business connections to uh, potentially dodgy money. Now, nobody knows, as I say, I'm going to be very careful with my words here to not accuse Mr. Farage of having any politically exposed financial connections to Russia. But there is a, a very famous uh, clip, you can catch it on YouTube, of Channel 4 um, News, uh, an important news entity here in the UK, doorstepping Farage during the um, Brexit referendum campaign and asking him about his sources of funding. He didn't answer any of the questions, but it was quite clear that they were Channel 4 was trying to ask questions about whether or not Mr. Farage took money from a particular individual who is well known in the UK, who is alleged to have connections to Russia. It is yes. also alleged, it has been alleged in, in Parliament actually, never repeated outside, that uh, Farage took some money from RT, which is now beyond the pale, but back in the day had a London base, which um, it wasn't illegal to take money from RT, which, but it's the proper, uh, the international propaganda arm, media arm of the Kremlin, RT effectively. Right. Um, you should see the head of RT appearing on Moscow Nightly News at the moment, calling for London to be nuked. It's, it's quite a thing. Um, so because of these suspicions and allegations, none of which have been proved, none of which have been answered, and these right. sort of voce questions being asked, uh, one might think, and as I say, we don't know why his account has been closed, that the bank concerned got worried about potential political exposure to Russia. If that was the case, if, if that was what um, the bank was worried about, they were almost certainly quite right to ask very fundamental questions about whether or not they have, they, they wanted a relationship with Farage as a customer, because by law, under financial regulation law, that's exactly what they have to do. So the question is, was it because, did they close his account because of his views? That's wrong. Did they close his, his account because they had some reason to suspect links to dodgy money? And in which case they were right to close his account. We, we just don't know. Let me ask you finally, Chris, about a far right politician who is increasingly visible in Britain. Her name is Suella Braverman. She is the Home Secretary, and she is clearly uh, making a bid to be the next right-wing leader of the Conservative Party, which may be the end of it if she takes over. Her big policy is the Rwanda policy, in which she promises to send people who have uh, entered Britain on boats or off boats straight to Rwanda. And she said, my dream is to see a jumbo jet taking off from Heathrow Airport full of people bound for Rwanda. In his second column for the Daily Mail, this charlatan, Boris Johnson, who is now a shock horror merchant for the Daily Mail, and his... The headline read, let's get Rwanda done, which yeah. uh, I'm sure our listeners will know, and I'm sure you know, it used to be let's get Brexit done. Now it's let's get Rwanda done. It makes you wonder about the nature 
of politics and Britain, really, that this fella can be plastered across the front of what was once a decent newspaper. There, in another newspaper today, the London Times, there is a cartoon um, in which the cartoonist has drawn nurses and care workers pushing elderly people in wheelchairs through a crowded hospital waiting area. And the uh, the crowds who are waiting to be seen by the medics are gesticulating and pointing angrily at the nurses and care workers and telling them to go home. And yes. that's to capture the idea that most people in this country are not nasty, xenophobic, racist people, yes. absolutely consumed by the fact that um, because of the many flaws and problems that we have in our uh, economy and society, the, a lot of these nurses and immigrant, uh, nurses and care workers are immigrants, and we need them. Yesterday, there was a report published by a group of so-called Red Wall Tories exhorting Soela Brabman to become even tougher about immigration. She's got a problem, of course, because the um, the High Court, the Appeal Court, last week threw out the Rwanda policy, and it will now go to the Supreme Court and and may or may not reach a conclusion this year. So in 2023, we probably won't see any uh, people um, deported to to Rwanda if we if we ever do at great expense to the taxpayer, much more expensive than uh, we um, would if we process them properly here. It's a cruel and ugly and dreadful policy. And my view is that most people in the UK, even if you are concerned about levels of immigration, understand that the Rwanda thing is just dreadful. I think that is a minority view. And that the, the xenophobia by the ex exhibited, in my view, by these Red Wall Tories yesterday, and it was interesting that uh, Downing Street and the Chancellor of the Exchequer distanced themselves from, from this view. Because the, the Red Wall... Tories typically all believe, I think, erroneously, focus group type reports coming back to them, that people want immigration to be controlled. And I think that's true. But it's the way in which people want it to be controlled that they don't want this Rwanda thing. I don't think Rwanda has a majority uh, backing here in the UK. It's seen for what it is, which is a thoroughly nasty, deplorable, yes. awful way of treating often extremely vulnerable people. Yeah, it is hard to think of a more disgusting policy. And I thought that, and I'm sure you did, when she first broached it, I thought it was a joke. Um, but then it became serious. And then uh, she talked about her dream. Of course, uh, she is the Home Secretary, and she may well end up as leader of the Tory party. I mentioned somebody else earlier on, but I'll give you another name. You, you, you know the name Steve Baker. I do. He, he actually deplored her. Steve Baker is, was the king of Brexit. And also her campaign manager when she was... Was he? Uh, I didn't know that. ...when she was running to, to succeed really? as prime minister. And over the weekend, he let it be known through sources that he was um, disowning her and that he thought that her policies meant that he could no longer support her. So when somebody, again, a second example today of the hard right... Yeah, uh, coming out with stuff that is really, really interesting. I think some Tories are beginning to realise that their lurch to the right is backfiring big time. Right. Okay, Chris. As always, it's fascinating uh, to talk to you, and we're very grateful to you. Chris, of course, has his own podcast, The Other Hand, uh, which he does with uh, another contributor, a valued contributor to our podcast, 
Jim Power. So that is always worth a listen, as I'm sure you'll gather from Chris's contribution to us. We're grateful to Chris, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.